I'd say take some action that makes you uncomfortable, but you see the its purpose and its potential to really have impact. Now is the time to turn rage into action. Every fraction of the degree matters. Every voice can make a difference, and every second counts. I wanted to panic. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire, because it is. From the pandemic to climate change, going it alone is simply not an option. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. This is an all-hands-on-deck moment. It's now or never if we want to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. Philanthropy is uniquely placed to complement the roles of business and government and make an impact on the global climate-related challenges. Foundations and civil society organizations have a crucial role to play in implementing sustainable development by providing funds, connecting cross-sector collaboration, building bridges, investing into sustainable finance, and influencing political decision-making, obviously. Philanthropic climate action is multifaceted. However, having a look at the numbers, climate change mitigation still remain below 2% of total philanthropic giving worldwide in 2020. Now, the big question is how to unlock the immense potential of philanthropy for sustainable development and climate action. Welcome back to our podcast, Accelerating Climate Solutions. I am Stefan Schurich from the Foundation's platform F20. And I am Ruth Richardson from the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. In this podcast, we set out to unearth the hard topics at the heart of the debate about the climate crisis and dig into what's holding back solutions from taking root. The Global Alliance for the Future of Food and the Foundation's platform, F20, are both networks of philanthropic organizations collaborating on joint transnational action towards sustainable development. We are strongly convinced that philanthropy can and must be a solution on this pathway. In this bonus episode, we want to critically explore how to unlock the full potential of philanthropy for the implementation of the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations, and of course, the Paris Climate Agreement. We are delighted to have this discussion today with Nira Nundi, co-founder and partner of the Indian Dasra Foundation. Dasra means enlightened giving in Sanskrit. So before we dive into today's discussion proper, and hear your perspectives, Nira, we always start by asking our guests a simple question, <laughs> which isn't so simple. If you could press a button and change one thing, what would it be? Thanks for having me. And um, I'm not sure I'll thank you for this opening question, but uh, definitely thought provoking. I had a number of different buttons that I was thinking to press, but perhaps if I were to pick one, It would really be to accelerate social change. And I'm going to date myself, but I don't know if you remember those VHS, those video um, yep. oh, machines yes, yes. that used to put those tape, tape, tapes into. And then you'd press like fast forward and it's like, and then you'd kind of get to wherever you wanted on the actual video. I just feel 
if there was a way to press a button and just move this pace towards change where we need to get to, I think if we could fast forward, that would be phenomenal. Well, the other button that we obviously have pressed is record for today. So that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Remaining in this picture. If I may, Nira, challenge you a little bit on this one. Um, I mean, it's a great answer, um, obviously. But if you if you would fast forward and you just press the fast forward button, where to and what would have to be changed then? Um, What do you expect if you stop and push the play button then? Yeah. And I mean, I guess when we talk about climate change and climate action, sometimes if we say fast forward, then, you know, has it all come to an end? And is it a, an even more state of crisis than now? I, I was actually pressing a very specific button where change typically sp- takes 15 to 20 years, right? And and some of this related to climate will take even longer, that if the inputs and those aspects of what we're doing that are related to climate action, if we can accelerate the change that's needed, whether it's coming together, whether it's dialogue, whether it's actually to see the change is what I'd like to fast forward, perhaps not the crisis, obviously. Yeah, well, that makes makes a lot of sense. And the <laughs> The, the question, of course, of our today's topic is what the role of philanthropic organizations can be. I mean, what can philanthropic organizations contribute as being part of the solution? Yeah? How can philanthropic organizations really take a stand uh, and, 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 and throw their weight or their money behind the implementation of the 2030 Agenda, for example, which would be really fast-forwarding things, maybe? There's no doubt. I mean, I've dedicated my life, as have many others, to really accelerating philanthropy and and wanting to make and see a change. But it can be intimidating when we start to think of the size of the problem, the time it takes to solve uh, the problem. And therefore, philanthropy plays a very unique role that we all have to do a better job in highlighting. And where we need to go is less short term, even though I press the fast forward button. It's a long term play, but philanthropy can come in and de-risk, right? Philanthropy can come in and really look at innovation, really look at disruptive things, but also look at a place of where there's intersection, right? Between, as you opened, Stefan, with government, the markets, and even more important foundations and civil society, in that intersection, if you think about it, you know, as a Venn diagram, that middle is where, you know, we see and really have been pushing philanthropy to move into and build more platforms, common goods, and be able to subsidize where, you know, the market can't actually come in. So there's a, a wide range of participation of philanthropic organizations that can play. But if we're just double clicking on philanthropy and foundation giving, that would really be for places that are bringing the community into this, uh, that are really looking at collaboration, but also at horizontals, if one can call it that, right? Whether we need more research, we need more data, we need a sense of what's working on the ground. We need a lot more also around what's the narrative with which we're really trying to increase you know, participation. This is where I see philanthropy playing a role in addition to uh, traditional ways of giving. By no means is that not important, but supporting community-based organizations, partners on the ground, uh, I think that is also part of what we need philanthropy to be doing. 
it's never one or the other. Uh, so it's really firing up on all, all engines for, for philanthropy to make a difference. So Neera, you, you've talked about horizontals, data research, et cetera. You've talked about um, philanthropy's role in de-risking. You've talked about intersection of players. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about the intersection of issues, um, sort of from a systemic perspective, because we know so much of social change is related to the systems that we've built and the systems we have to unravel. And that so many things are interconnected from war to health pandemics to ecosystem services, the, you know, the field that um, you particularly work in, to climate, and the list can go on and on. So I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about how you see the intersection of issues and maybe particularly bring it down to the ground where you predominantly work in India, um, how those issues are showing up in interconnected ways. I'm thrilled to see a willingness to explore uh, intersectionality and its origins, you know, came obviously from the feminist movement a lot more around gender. But I think it's equally relevant here when we look at climate or food security. But, you know, the challenge, Ruth, has been being able to really make those links stronger, I think, is one piece. So, so it's not a lot of evidence saying if we do this in health, then, you know, this becomes the impact on climate. And so we need to do a better job at having clear linkages, but also the narrative with which these linkages play out for a reality across different communities and demographics, I think, has really reached a sense of urgency. And so we need in that horizontal play to actually look at that, you know, a lot more. The challenge has been as philanthropic funds have often been tagged with a certain color, if one can call it that, right? So I'm an education funder, I'm a health funder. And now now you have people saying I'm a climate funder. So that siloed approach to funding has naturally played into the way that sector players also play and prioritize the change that they see. So it's going to have to be both top down, if one can call it that, and bottom up, where from the community and the organizations and nonprofits on the ground need to make the stronger case for this need for intersectional. So for example, we have a collaborative on adolescent girls uh, empowerment, and we look at sort of key outcomes around child marriage, around keeping girls uh, in school, and really building their agency and livelihoods. And then finally, it really looks at helping them delay their, their pregnancy. Now, all of that is intersectional, right? You can't only do education and health. And so by placing outcomes at the center of collaboration, that's really where we've seen a great impact of starting to find those linkages and in, in intersectionality. And that's where you also get funding that might be willing to come in through pooled funds. So another vehicle that we've seen that can break some of these siloed approaches is actually having pooled funds. So maybe an it might take time for philanthropists to change, but we're saying with the urgency, get an education funder, health funder, climate funder, and create these vehicles for them to be able to participate in. So yeah, these would be a couple of things that I'd, I'd say. You're talking about the silos in terms of how philanthropy thinks of themselves, a foundation might think of it themselves. Back in 2015 at the Global Alliance, we did a landscape scan on food systems funding. And the Global Alliance is an alliance of food systems funders, 
Um, however, when we went to ask them about their food systems funding, most of them said, well, we're actually not food system funders. <laughs> we don't fund food systems. We fund climate, we fund public health, we fund workers' rights and protections, you know, whatever it is. But the beautiful thing in that was that what they all saw was the connection of food systems to all of those issues. And so I think maybe alongside that toolbox you're talking about in terms of food pooled funding and other things, also is just the coming together of philanthropy in alliances like the Global Alliance or like the F20, um, where foundations are learning from each other and influencing each other and seeing their issues in a very, very different light in terms of how closely connected they actually are. So thank you. But just from your experience, what have you sort of encountered as rate limiting factors in philanthropic organization. It's this, what we just described, obviously, as siloed, you know, or tacked programs. But what else is sort of holding foundations from your experience back? So I think there's obviously many things, but if I were to highlight a couple of, uh, you know, more things, but also just to to add to what the both of you were saying, we're seeing now that the systems change approach It's not new, right? This is something that came out in the 60s. Uh, I, I think what is new is perhaps these bridge builders like, you know, Ruth, the alliance that you're running or Stefan F20, that there is a willingness for organizations like ourselves to step in and an openness for foundations and organizations to want to learn. And so when we play out, what is the system that we're all actually trying to change? And that these players, foundations or NGOs see themselves on this map, if one can call it that, that interconnectedness um, and linkages come alive. So I think visualization of the systems that are trying to be changed, you're pro you might be proximate to education, but creating that link all the way down to climate, I think rests in some of our responsibility for how that is communicated. And that brings me back to which I wanted to chat a bit more around we need to build a stronger narrative. And that narrative comes not just from what, you know, the media might be saying or is mainstreaming or the kinds of conversations we have in closed doors. It's also about storytelling, right? And providing this connection and what is the systems change about where foundations also have an understanding and, and script, if one can call it that. So we're all beginning to speak a similar language. Language is so important in some of this social change that as we run these alliances, we also need to start to find a common language, right, that isn't isolating of those who have power and, and money to some extent, but also the language of the change makers and the community. And some of that bridge building through narrative change, we see, you know, as I, I would say, let's say is the second thing, perhaps that we need to really invest in. And I think the third thing is we're recognizing more and more that without engaging the government, whether, you know, local governments or these networks of governments, uh, we're never going to be able to achieve this because systems change ultimately for it to be sustainable needs to be part of government systems. And it's funny because we talk about government like some separate creature and being. Meanwhile, it's all made up of people ultimately. And so building relationships with those that are in government to be part of policy, action, implementation, coming together, that's the next step. So it, it can't be a we, them, us, them, they. It really has to be a lot more of a, of a we between, you know, government, 
private sector and, and civil society. And that's the role that I see, uh, you know, philanthropy playing as well. I may say that one of the ideas of setting up F20 was um, exactly that, that we sort of saw this as an invitation for foundations to also take a political stand when it comes to the implementation of the Paris Agreement or when it comes to the sort of, you know, to the call upon politicians for climate action and that we would sort of feed this with concrete suggestions. And by doing this, somehow offering a way to translate the political weight of foundations to the uh, decision-making to the decision-making vectors uh, within politics. But on the other side, the least some foundations want is to be translated <laughs> into political <Right>. action <laughs> or uh, the least they want is to take a political stand. This is changing now, obviously, um, with the you know, great success of the Global Alliance, you know, seeing... seeing um, their members and also with the experience that we make. It is changing though, but it's a bit too slowly, I guess, still. You know, but there's a, a strength in numbers and coming together, right? I, I agree with you that so there's a, quite a lot of anxiety and nervousness of playing on the political side, yet recognizing the importance of it. But what we're seeing, uh, you know, the, the fact that there is an alliance and you are coming together and that there is collective voice and uh, influence, we're seeing instead of calling each other out, then, you know, you want to be part of the group that's really trying to push a uh, push for change. I think so we're seeing that collective action being very, very important. But what I'm also weary of at the same time, especially when we bring foundations perhaps together, or this whole movement around collaboratives is an additional concentration of power. So, you know, when you have pooled funds and you have alliances of foundations, are you just bringing those who have money power into even a stronger position of power? And that's really where we say we need to do a better job of making these platforms inclusive. So are they including uh, people from communities that are the most vulnerable? Are they including NGOs who do enter in with very strong activism and rights-based approaches because that's really where you get true collective action and and sometimes you want to be with your type because it's comfortable and i think that's the role we need to be playing as if we can call it secretariats or backbones of these alliances is ensuring that more of this power doesn't actually get get concentrated but recognizing how you can leverage that at different points uh in time I'm so pleased that you brought this up because um, I was going to ask about other examples of philanthropic leadership. We've talked about sort of the narrative and political voice, collective voice, et cetera. Um, and I wanted to dig in a little bit and sort of understand from your perspective a bit more of your thoughts on on philanthropic leadership. But I really wanted to bring in this thread of um, sort of accountability, responsibility, transparency. There are a lot of debates within philanthropy right now. Some call it the legitimacy of philanthropy you know, I've used some other words like accountability and responsibility, you know, but it's a really, really important topic in terms of how, especially with the ballooning of philanthropy on the planet right now, you know, how how does the philanthropic sector grow in leadership while really holding, you know, these deeper principles of needing to be um, equitable to needing to be diverse and inclusive and, you know, 
I could put a bunch of acronyms around that and I won't, but, you know, just really holding on to these, these deep principles. So can you talk a little bit more about that for us? I mean, I don't think that's any different than, you know, the private sector and how business leaders run, run their businesses is, is equally needed as philanthropic leaders, you know, manage their philanthropy. I think what we're seeing is what, what's working is both the pressure that, um, whether from the community or those of us in the sector and ecosystem place on uh, on philanthropists. But ultimately, you know, Ruth Stabonic comes from the values, ideology of philanthropists themselves uh, that I think drives this. But it also comes from a place and a willingness for, you know, I, I would call it maybe new philanthropy that wants to learn, recognizes the inequities uh, of the world in quite a different way. And so they're willing to listen more, to learn more, to explore. And I think ultimately it's also peer pressure. I think philanthropists calling out and supporting each other, um, but also coming together to be part of charters, to agree that this is a certain way of working, again, comes back to there's a greater need for facilitation of, of this uh, uh, coming together. But I think ultimately it's grounded on our societal, society's values and, and what, what's the world that we all want to see and how much are we actually willing to, to give up in terms of power and control to be able to go down the philanthropic path that, that we actually need. We just spoke about system change and system approach and that this is slowly but surely increasing, at least the awareness about it, that it's actually needed. In which way would you see the famous legendary sustainable development goals providing a service here for thinking holistically or at least sort of, you know, putting things into perspective? My experience is that um, they resonate a lot with philanthropy, with um, foundations that say, you know, we may not be going as far as committing to any climate action, but the SDGs are the reference for our work, which essentially is the same because climate is really a huge subject within the SDGs. Would you, would you agree with that, that sort of this framework could actually help in accelerating um, the view in a more systemic way and accelerating systemic action, in fact? So I would say partially yes and partially no. And there's a couple of aspects around the sustainable development goals that I think sometimes we just look at the end product and we, we look at its potential, but its drawbacks. But I actually wanted to highlight that the process with which these SDGs came together was phenomenal, right? And, and that process of bringing civil society foundations and different players in the ecosystem to agree on a set of sustainable development goals that would define pathways, right, for development, create that common language, create indicators that we could begin as a sector and countries to hold ourselves accountable, I think is a is getting to this baseline is quite phenomenal. The challenge we have is this SDGs don't inherently highlight the intersectionality. In fact, they make little boxes out of things that, right, should be cir circles and overlapped. It should be like a cloud in, to, some, to some extent. And that's where perhaps the systems change intersectionality of these goals 
we start to lose. But I don't, I think the benefit of the clarity with which we go out, right, whether it's starting to look at how much budget is going to them, whether we're measuring these as outcomes, you know, putting them on dashboards, selecting a few, I think it's a great roadmap. I think the next step we need to take is link it now to what aspects are more intersectional or linked. Where is the systems that you know, rest on a few of these SDGs to really bring out, you know, the change that that we want to see. I think we're starting that journey now with the SDGs. So I'd love for it to continue to to stay relevant. It it also brought out a, a sense of accountability, I'd say, between countries uh, as well. I think India was perhaps a bit hesitant when initially the SDGs came came through. But as there is more and more global pressure, if one can call it that, that adoption of countries to use it as a, as a metric of sorts to hold that accountability on different issues, I think that is actually helping and we must continue with that. Yeah. Well, I know that Ruth want to come in, but just this little anecdote that I may share here, we have sort of as a little gift for ministers who we sometimes meet a box with the 17 SDGs as literally wooden bricks in it. Yeah, And it's nice to see what happens if you put them in front of the ministers. And while we're talking about sort of climate and, you know, the different aspects, sometimes it happens that they just unpack that box and they start playing with the SDGs and they're putting one on top of the other and just start building their little pyramid. And one of the conclusions is actually, if you look at them, not on one single box, but on, you know, things that really belong together and somehow build upon each other, then that's where the systemic element starts to unfold. So agree with you. It's both. It can maybe, be. Maybe you'll make them ring, Stefan, next. Make them ring. <laughs> <laughs> wings? We're gonna have a... Wings or circles? circles? I mean, circles <laughs> rings, and then. Rings. Okay. Rings, rings. <laughs> so, to achieve the SDGs, which of course is, is the you know, primary goal, is going to require people and organizations, of course. We're heading into more difficult times for leaders and for organizations as they deal with stresses, um, as we see, you know, sort of increasing impacts um, in our day-to-day lives, in our professional lives. If we look at COVID, if we look at heat waves, if we look at any of those factors, it gets more and more difficult for leaders and their organizations to really sort of step up in a way that I think um, is really impactful. Um, you just re- recently wrote an article in the Times of India about strategic philanthropy and the need to improve institutional resilience, which is a lovely term. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by institutional resilience and how that connects to philanthropy? I came from, I suppose, a non-traditional entry point into the sector. I did investment banking and then did an MBA. And I came from really the set of bias, I suppose, that if we strengthen organizations and institutions, even from a management point of view, that that these organizations would not only be resilient, but as they would grow, uh, their impact would grow. And that was sort of really fundamental to why we started uh, Dasra. And I think the crisis within which we, you know, some of us are coming out of, but really went through, I think just for me brought to life and really made it even more visible, the importance of strengthening institutions and not just relying on 
on charismatic leadership. And, and we put a lot of pressure on leaders. In fact, so much of investment in philanthropy rests on the personalities, characters, values of leadership. And, and that's important. But equally important is encouraging philanthropy and investment in strengthening institutions and, and kind of doing the boring stuff, whether it's a technology backbone, whether it's investing in actual talent, uh, all of that organizational development stuff, stuff that you don't see, we need to invest more in because when these crises do hit, it's those that have the sort of the pillars of, if one can call it, of the house in, in order that you can come through these, these crises. And it's simple things like financial planning, understanding cash flow. These were the things that out of during the state of COVID, we did a lot of work with NGOs who lost a lot of funding. We're not getting funding coming in. We had regulatory constraints that got placed upon them. Um, and just understanding how they cash burn, where, how much can they go? If they were to cut costs, what could it look like? So I think some of the principles with which one manages you know, a business, aspects of those, don't get me wrong, not all of that, are equally relevant in, in running and building an effective nonprofit. And, and that's really what we've spent a lot of our time doing. That is all what I mean in its simplest way of building sort of resilient uh, institutions. I think building them institutionally is one part, but the link between these institutions and building resiliency in the community is actually, I'd say, our, our next step that we really have to accelerate and get to. Ultimately, it's the communities and their ability to demand and to be resilient through whether climate crisis or other crisis that's going to get us you know, all, all through this. It is the most vulnerable communities that are most impacted by you know, whether COVID, disaster, or, or, or this climate climate change, um, or even other aspects. When our schools closed down in India for COVID, you know, 90% of children in India go to government schools. So yeah, I think that institutional resilience has to link to, to community resilience. I also like the term institutional resilience and resilience in generally, uh, or in general terms sort of becomes the the new go-to place, I would say, and it <laughs> yeah. sort of um, offers um, a high level of uh, inclusivity, I would say, because resilience means many things in different regards. It means um, energy resilience. It means to adapt to climate impacts that we can't avoid anymore. It means economic resilience. So the resilience thing, sort of maybe it's a result of the COVID pandemic that yeah. We understand resilience now better than we have before, but resilience is sort of really on top of it and really gives some good guidance. Um, and that also would mean that for philanthropic organizations, my guess would be that offering larger funds for making a place more resilient to weather extremes, be it droughts or be it heat waves mm -hmm. or be it um, floods or whatever. And I know what I'm talking about because we've just had this annual anniversary, the first annual anniversary of a terrible flood here in Germany. 
with hundreds of people who mm-hmm. who died because of just um, um, massive rainfall that didn't stop for two weeks or so on the same place. So we're not we're not prepared for that, and at least to that extent, to how we can actually prepare to it. I guess philanthropic funding is an important lever for it. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, just listening to you, Stefan, I I started to worry that resilience means we stay the way we are and just kind of somehow be more courageous and stronger to kind of make it through crisis. But there's an aspect of of resilience, which means it's like if resilience is 0.0, we need to go we need to go negative in the sense that invest in strengthening and building that resilience. It's not that current state is actually going to do it. And so rebuilding to some extent what it means to be resilient in what we see as, you know, the future shocks or current shocks. I think some of that circularity is important for philanthropy to come back in and find gaps, right? Where are the weak points? Where are we strengthening you know, whether it's philanthropic infrastructure or literally infrastructure so that we are, you know, more resilient. I think some of that um, is important for the for the way forward, rather than us just saying we all just have to come in and be stronger and be just be simply be resilient isn't going to cut it. Yeah. And philanthropic organizations do have the lack room to not uh, focus on sort of national or state level of funds or programs, but to really strengthen the resilience of local communities in particular. It doesn't necessarily have to be a community foundation that only focuses on one particular region, but as you do it in India, you really look into organizations that are working on the ground and how you can um, strengthen you know, their back in terms of their work then on the local level, because that's, that's where the support is needed. It's also that philanthropy can make visible where are the weak points, right? Where are the gaps by investing in things like data or an understanding of what's working and not for then the larger funding to come in, right? Whether it's government funding or larger funding to to support. And that's where it doesn't always have to be about philanthropy. It doesn't have to be about always solving it entirely. It can also be about unveiling gaps, putting in needs. Back to my far earlier point around investing in horizontals, because you really want philanthropy to be catalytic because it's ultimately a small amount in the, what, two and a half trillion dollars that we need to solve these SDGs. And so being an enabling aspect to change, right, being a facilitator, a catalyst, that's also where some of the philanthropic organizations need to to look at. So I was just... um before this, listening to a different podcast, <laughs> um, Christy, Krista Tippett um, called On Being. I don't know if you know her series, but she was interviewing Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, who's a marine biologist, who wrote a book called All We Can Save. And the question she ultimately asks is, what if we get this right? What if we actually get this right? <laughs> And I, I wanted to, just because the question's at the forefront of my mind, um, having just listened to this. So I guess, Nira, my question for you is, is what if philanthropy gets it right? You know, what does that look like really for philanthropy to excel in its role to excel? You've, you've touched on a bunch of these points, but if you could just kind of pull up what would be sort of the top, you know, three or four yeah. things that you would, you would name 
What a wonderful question. It kind of gave me goosebumps and it leaves me with right for whom, right? Who, who defines what's right? And sometimes right, wrong, yes, no, go, no, go. A binary view adds simplicity, right, to the complexity of what we're trying to solve. But ultimately, right for whom? I'd say ultimately, if philanthropy gets it right, it's that it's been inclusive of the most vulnerable. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I think <laughs> many foundations will do this is because, you know, I, I spent like, my, I I spend my, there? I, <laughs> that was the fast forward thing. I know exactly. <laughs> um, I've spent my life in philanthropy as well. Right. And, and, you know, you just see all these really well-meaning um, foundations who really want to get it right and really want to be inclusive of the most vulnerable. It's hard. Um, you know, and often foundations don't get it right. So do you have any advice on how foundations can actually do that in a very real, meaningful, tangible way to really come to, you know, the complexity of issues and being inclusive of the most vulnerable, whether we're talking about health or climate, many of the most vulnerable at the sharp end of all of these things. So how do foundations actually do that in a real and meaningful way? I completely agree. It's, it's not easy, but you know, who said philanthropy is easy. It's our responsibility. uh, I think to get, to get it right in this way, if I I may say frame it um, for the, for the most vulnerable, I'd say the first thing is listening. I think philanthropic organizations haven't quite figured that out. And so listening to the community, building feedback loops, learning representation, All of these things sound simple, but they're very important for us to figure out how we do it and focus on that process. Maybe we'll land in the same place. Maybe, you know, folks are enlightened enough. But I I think that incorporating some of these ways of working um, will help us uh, to, to get to that right for whom answer. And I think inclusivity starts at home. You know, look at your boards, look at who's making decisions, look at your leadership team. How have you created the team? How are you including those, the partners that you're supporting, the community that you're supporting? I think there's a lot of room for improvement just, you know, in one's home before you go out with anything more. Well, thank you for answering my question with a question. And I mean that truly (laughs) because it's a really critical question, right? For whom? Um, So I appreciate that. So um, just for the next year, which is probably not not then, um, but just next year, um, Nira, we're going to have, uh, and I'm just coming a little bit, you know, back to that idea where foundations take a political stand and what their, you know, what the need is that political or that um, philanthropic organizations actually somehow show leadership. Next year is the G20 presidency with uh, India. And um, we have seen a couple of G20 summits in the past that sort of have tightened the language, not necessarily the actions. And I wonder what you would expect from an Indian presidency. I know this was not in the in the documents to prepare yourself for the... <laughs> For the podcast, but I just wanted to ask the question if you have any thoughts on particular the G20 presidency next year before we close. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a lot of slow, steady buzz beginning to emerge from the sector on, on the G20 
being in India, I, I mean, we're all glass half full folks, obviously, in the sector. So we're all very excited, right, that the presidency is coming to India, because with that visibility comes the responsibility of being able to lead uh, a global group and looking good, right, in the wor- <laughs> yeah. on the world stage. And I think we need to really take advantage of this window, very small window, it's just a year, right? But I think being able to take advantage of it is a tremendous opportunity. So mobilizing the philanthropic ecosystem to really come in, you know, with the F20, I think is a is a great opportunity. I think we have to be more intentional as an as a philanthropic ecosystem and more intentional as as India. You know, we've just bypassed the population of China. We have incredible energy needs. I, I think just defining how if we get it right and, and can lead the movement with India there at the table and all of us wanting to be there and wanting to be part of the solution, I think that the global consequences are, are phenomenal. So I think getting us here is, is great. I think getting us to participate and be part of climate action, a just climate action, I think is really, is really exciting. Well, we definitely cross fingers and I would say probably the situation next year already looks slightly differently from this year where the entire focus of the G20 is on uh, the war by Russia against the Ukraine. Let's see where we are uh, next year. Before we close, maybe if I may, one final question. Um, oh. Yes. Because I was I was just trying to imagine, um, we know that a um, couple of our listeners are from the foundations and from the philanthropic sector, and they may um, listen to this podcast carefully, but still have not answered the question then, okay, what is actually the recommendation to me? I mean, what do they actually want from me then? So if you had the chance to give one recommendation to a foundation that has not either joined the Global Alliance for the Future of Food or Foundations 20, for example, what would be, I mean, what would be your recommendation, your one thing, your one ball that you throw to them and say, listen, this is what you can do now. Let's, you know, start with this. I'd say take some action that makes you uncomfortable but you see the, its purpose and its potential to really have impact because that's what's important, right? Taking this risk is what I mean by being uncomfortable, but also recognizing our, our biases and how comfortable we are. I think if we could just take one action, um, that means feeling uncomfortable with obviously the right, if I may say, you know, and goals and objectives in mind, I think I'd be very pleased with that outcome from those of you listening. So summing this up is impossible, to be frank. Um, this was quite a journey. And I won't even try to repeat all the different aspects that we had. But I may um, offer sort of three entry points for foundations that we touched upon in one way or the other. The first one is leading by example. That would go to where is the investment being actually invested or where's the capital invested into which areas? And in this sort of, is this aligned with the mission or not? Lead by example in terms of accountability and transparency, things we covered. Leading by example also in, and that's my second point, exhibiting 
political leadership in that sense that you take a stand and that you make, you know, no matter what your business is, just taking a stand and say, this is important. And what if we, if we fail in this? Yeah. So take a political stand in terms of climate action, in terms of uh, the interconnectedness, in terms of systemic approaches, in terms of resilience, all things that we covered. And the, f the third part would actually be translate this into your own programs, basically, as simple as that, not just tell politicians what to do or support those who do um, or just, um, um, you know, reinvest your capital, but also, of course, reconsider your programs and um, de-silo your programs. I think this is an important point that we've made here um, in this conversation. So um, this would be um, my summary, but I leave it up to Ruth to probably um, add a few things as she's always so good and summing things up. I have nothing to add, Stefan. Those, I agree it was a challenging task to try to, <laughs> to bring it all together. I just might put an underscore under um, near your comments around narrative. Narrative change is so critical. Um, and we know it's, you know, it's a really strong um, sort of leverage point as be the language we use sometimes. And yeah, I think coming up with that collective narrative, philanthropy has such a amazing role in terms of supporting that kind of in others in supporting communications and media channels, and then also helping themselves understand the narratives, you know, because we all live by them somewhat unconsciously sometimes. And so even for philanthropy to understand the narratives they live by and how to shift those and change those. I just really appreciated your points on that. Also really appreciated you joining us today. It was fantastic to meet you Absolutely, and fantastic yeah. to Thank you. learn from you and to benefit from your wisdom and your experience and your expertise. So no, thank no. you so much for joining us. And to our listeners, um, would love to hear what your main takeaways are from this podcast. And Stefan can let you know how to share feedback. Yes. Um, also, again, Nero from my end, many, many thanks uh, for taking your time. Um, and Thank for you. listeners, please share your feedback on this episode via the platform that you're listening or um, join the conversation on Twitter or at F20 platform or at futurefood.org or um, support this or spread word about it on Instagram or LinkedIn or the usual social media channels. Many thanks, everyone. Many thanks to our listeners and stay tuned for the next one. <laughs>